All right, uh, well, those are going out. If you haven't been with us in the past few weeks, for about uh, almost two months now, we've been walking through the book of Genesis together on Sunday mornings as a local church. And so this morning we made our way. We're going to finish up chapter two. And I just want to encourage you, just like Ryan kind of laid out earlier, we come in to the, to the gathering, to the church gathering on a weekly basis, and, and there, there are people all over the map uh, this morning with where you're at in Christ, or maybe you're not even in Christ. Maybe you're encouraged in Christ or discouraged, or maybe you feel colder than you wish you felt to Jesus, to the things of Christ. Maybe you're fighting to stay awake this morning, or maybe you are busting loose with praise to God for what He's done for you in Jesus. And so what we want to do, this is how God has fed His people for for centuries, okay, this has happened. The, the, the church gathers together and God feeds His people from His Word. So we want to ask that God would do that this morning all over this place, that He would meet us exactly where we are with His Word. And so that's what we're going to ask Him to do. That's what we ask Him to do every week. So let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we gather together this morning in Your name, Lord Jesus, as Your people, and we just we just plead that, Lord. We just plead... On behalf, God, that You have made us Your own. God, that You would strengthen us today. That, that You would remind us of what You have done for us in Jesus today, God. That You would instruct our minds today from Your Word, God. That You would give us the, the appropriate attention, God, to linger over Your truth. And God, I pray for my brothers and sisters, for all in this room this morning, God, that You would drive out any coldness, any attentiveness, inattentiveness, any distractions, God, that You would carve out this holy place by the power of Your Holy Spirit to cause us to hear Your words, to hear You speak to us, Lord. And we ask that You would do just that, God, that You would draw near this morning and that You would address us from Your Word. God, that You would teach us how to think and how to feel this morning. God, encourage us today. Meet us exactly where we are, Lord. Lift our face to the heavens. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 2, we're going to start our time by reading the Word of God together. We're going to start in Genesis 2, 18. So turn there if you have a Bible. I want us, every person that has a Bible in this room, I want your words, I want your eyes on these words as we read together. This is the most important thing you're going to hear me say in the next hour. Okay, this, these are the words directly from the Holy One. This is truth without error. This is the living, breathing Word of God. So I'm going to read this. But as I read this, God, the living God, is addressing you from His Word. Genesis 2, verse 18. It's the Word of God. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, 
A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So let me, let me remind us of what Ryan taught us last week. We're in the middle of a, of, a, of a section of Genesis. And so what Ryan laid out for us real quick last week that I would encourage you to go back and listen to it on the podcast is there's this Hebrew word called the Toledo. Okay? And, and ten times in the book of Genesis, that word is used to introduce a new section of the book. So that word literally breaks Genesis into ten different sections. The word literally means generations. That's why the book of Genesis is called Genesis. It's named after this word. So we're sitting right in the middle of one of these sections. Okay, and What Ryan laid out for us last week is that Genesis chapter 2 is really the goodness and the grace of God towards this man. Prior to setting up this fall that's going to happen in Genesis chapter 3. And what God is doing in His Word is He's building this thing up. Not only did man sin against God, but man sinned against the God who poured out His goodness and His grace toward him. Right? So you remember this. So, so God formed Adam and then he, he gave Adam himself. He gave Adam his own presence. And then he, he gave Adam this place to live, this garden planted by God himself. And, and he gave Adam this glorious task to work for the Lord in this garden. And so Adam's got God. He's got this glorious place to live and he's got this glorious job. And here, what you're going to see happen in this, genesis, in this narrative is you have this, we're moving towards chapter 3, but it's going to zone in on one of these subplots. And so this is the last of God's gifts towards Adam. And, and the, what's highlighted here is look at how gracious this God has been to this man. And the last gift that God is going to give Adam is the woman. And so this today, we're going to zone in on the first marriage. This is the first marriage in the Garden of Eden. And this chapter 24, uh, verse 24, that's going to be the foundation verse for marriage that the rest of the Bible's teaching is going to build off of. So this is foundational. This book that we read every week, it begins with a wedding and it ends with a wedding. That means that marriage is a theme that runs through this entire book. And we're going to talk about that. God designed marriage to do something. It wasn't like God... Uh, you know, somewhere along the way, saw this picture happening among human beings and said, man, I could really use that. I could really, that, that is so interesting, the things that that could communicate about me. I could use that. He designed it from the very beginning to show something about himself. And so this is what we're going for today. We're going to unpack the first wedding, the first marriage. And Genesis 2 is going to show us what marriage was intended to be. Because this is a glimpse of marriage before what? Before sin. Okay, this is a glimpse before sin comes in and wrecks and taints marriage. So this is marriage as God designed it. And we need to hear this probably more than ever before in our culture. Okay? Because these things are under attack. It is no surprise that marriage is under attack, gender roles are under attack, sexuality is under attack in our culture. They're literally front, front ground uh, battlegrounds, okay? front lines. This is where the battle is happening in our generation. And we need to be disciples of Jesus that learn to speak the truth in our culture. There's a truth war happening in our culture. Okay? And we have to be the ones to contend for these things. I want you to listen to a, to a quote by Charles Spurgeon. He says this, he says, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition 
every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. And then he says, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And so the battle is raging in our generation around these things. The truth war is raging in our generation about around marriage, around gender, around sexuality. And we want to learn today, as we lean in and listen to the Word of God, we want to learn to be equipped to contend for the things that God has set up in His creation. We want to learn these things. And so we know... As disciples of Jesus, we know that God designed marriage to point to this relationship that God has with His people. Remember what I said? It wasn't like He saw it happen and said, Oh, I, I can use that. I can really use that. That looks like something that I'd like to have with my people. It was designed from the very beginning by the God of the Bible. He, he owns marriage. He made it. And it's supposed to do what He created it to do. And here's what He created it to do. Listen to Ephesians 5, verse 31 and 32. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So he quotes Genesis, what we just read, Genesis 1.24, and then he says this, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what's at stake in this battleground? about marriage in our, in our culture, this redefinition of marriage, sexuality, and gender. What's at stake? What's at stake is what marriage was intended to point to. And so if marriage gets distorted in our culture, the picture of Jesus is being distorted. And that's what we contend for. Okay, We're not about people just obeying rules. We're about guarding this thing that points to the glory of Christ. This illustrates this relationship of Jesus and His church. So we want to learn how to do that. And this passage today is going to inform us, okay? But there's something else. And this is, really, this is really more important for you this morning because most of you in here, you are married disciples of Jesus, okay? You are married disciples of Jesus. And what I mean by that is more than learning how to contend in your culture, we need to learn how to play this out in our own lives, okay? Do you know how much of your walk with God plays out in your relationship with your spouse? This is the closest relationship on the planet. The, the one that knows you better than anybody else. The one that sees the junk in your life that nobody else knows about. Okay, So we want to lean in and we want to learn how to walk this out. And I want to just give you an example to, to just underline the importance of this. Okay, We know that marriage points to Jesus. We just read that from Ephesians 5. And what that means is that each of us that are married in this room, we have an opportunity to paint a glorious picture of Jesus Christ. Amen? So you just think about this. You just pretend for a second, and I have to pretend when I think about art. You pretend for a second <laughs> that, you are a, that you are a great painter that fears the Lord. And I, I'm telling you, okay? Just pretend that you are a great painter that fears God, okay? And, and you are charged with the task that you are, you are the one that's to paint the Last Supper instead of Da Vinci. Da Vinci's Last Supper, famous painting, right? And you get this charge that you've got to paint this thing. And you're a great painter and you fear God. And I want you to imagine in, in, in this example that you come through and you paint the 12 disciples, you got them all around the table, 
Okay, and you're done with them. And then you move on to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and you begin to put the brush to the canvas and you begin to paint the living God-man, the resurrected King of glory. And, and if you fear God in that moment, you begin to tremble at the thought, I don't want to mess up this whole painting, but I really don't want to mess up Jesus. I don't want to distort Him. I want to paint Him rightly. I want to paint Him accurately. I don't want to distort the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's the example. And I want to show us that every single one of us that are married are sitting right in the middle of that example. And you are literally painting a portrait of Jesus in the way that you relate to your spouse. You are. It's not that you might. You are. Okay? You are currently painting a picture of Jesus. It's either a good representation of Christ or you are painting a distorted representation of Jesus. Every single one of us that are married are painting a picture of Jesus. And I know most of you in this room, you are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I know that most of you in this room, you want to be a godly wife and a godly husband. And you want to paint a good picture of Jesus. And so what do we want to do? We want to lean into Genesis 1 this morning. We want to learn, Lord Jesus, teach me how to be a husband. Lord Jesus, teach me how to be a wife that glorifies you. Teach me these things. So let's pick up in verse 18. Verse 18, we start off with these words. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Title of your sheet says something like a problem and a solution. Okay, that's what we, that's what we face in this verse. And I want to remind you that, that Genesis chapter 2 chronologically does not come after Genesis chapter 1. Okay? Genesis chapter 1 and the first three verses of chapter 2 are the seven days of creation. And the rest of Genesis chapter 2 fits and slides right in day 6. Okay, So you're coming through and if you know this creation story well, you know throughout creation God has said something like, It is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. Okay, And then you get to this zoned in picture of day 6 and then all of a sudden He says, It is not good. This is a shocking thing in the context of what's happening. That something in God's creation, even before sin enters, is not good. This is the problem. And that verse tells us that the thing that is not good has to do with Adam's aloneness. Adam's aloneness is not good. It doesn't please God. And so we want to ask this question, what is that about? Okay, Because in one sense, Adam is not alone. Who's walking with Adam in the garden? The living God. So we need to be careful about how we explain, oh, Adam was so lonely. He had all of these needs that were unfulfilled. Okay? We need to be very careful of how we define what is not good about Adam's aloneness because he is in a living relationship with the living God. He's in fellowship with God. So let's press in. What exactly is not good about Adam's aloneness? And I've I got two things to put in front of you this morning. It is not good that Adam is alone and God's about to put him in relation to woman. And we want to ask why. Why is this necessary? Okay, and the first is this. In Genesis 1.28, God gave the man and the woman on day six, God gave the man and the woman a mission, a dominion mandate. It sounds masculine, but they were both given that. Okay, they were both told, man and woman, take dominion, fill the earth, be fruitful, multiply. Okay, it's awesome. It's an awesome picture of what God has called 
him to do. Okay? But something happens in, in the middle of this mandate. Adam can't fulfill it by himself. Okay? Part of this mandate demands that, they, that there be multiplication, procreation. He can't do that. So, Adam can't fulfill the mission that God has given him. And that's one reason why it is not good that Adam is alone. He can't do what God's commanded him to do. Okay? But I want to zone in here because a lot of people in history... They look at women as no more than procreation partners. And we want to hammer that with the Word of God this morning. Okay, There's something more happening here than woman being Adam's procreation partner. There's something deeper going on. Okay, That is wrong to think that way. And I want you to think about this. Consider this. God could have made Adam asexual. And what, what I mean by that... Like a plant or like an amoeba. And some of you medical folks know way more than that. But what that means is that they have the, there, are, there are creatures that have the ability to reproduce from within themselves. They don't need a partner. Do you know that God could have made us like that? Why are we not made like amoebas? Why are we made like we are made? And that's really pressing into the deeper issue of why... The, why it's not good for man to be alone. Because there, there was something deeper than, than his ability not to procreate. And I want to go back to Genesis 1.27. And, and the design in Genesis 1.27, if you remember day 6, you remember that this whole thing originates from this conversation, this creation of man, from this conversation of God talking to God. Okay, you remember that? So the Christian doctrine of one God in three persons, the triune God, he begins talking to himself and he said he unleashes his idea that we're going to create man and woman in our image, plural, our image. Okay? So there's something about the Godhead that is it's one, it's a unity, but it's a triunity. The living God in three persons lives in an in, in eternal perfect relationship when, with himself. And Adam is unable to show and to represent this, this triune God by himself. And so the image of God and how he shows forth God to the world, he can't do this by himself. There's something relational that God wants to show forth from human beings. Okay? There's something about his relationship with himself. The relationship within the Trinity. And that's why in verse 27 you got this hammered down. Male and female he created them. In the image of God, He created them. That's the highlight there. It takes both. God designed this from the very beginning. And so, it is not good that man is alone because God designed him to live in relationship with one of his own kind. He's in relationship with God, but God is not like Adam. God designed Adam, just like the Trinity, to be in relationship with one of his own kind. And it is not good that he is alone. So he must have a relational partner who is like him. In the, in the language of verse 18, it says, a helper fit for him. A companion like him. Your version might say something like that. And as chapter 2 unfolds, what we want to see in context is this becomes God's greatest earthly gift to this man, this woman. She is, she is a higher gift to Adam than the garden, a higher gift to Adam than this task that he's been given. She is his highest earthly gift. It is, the, it is the crown of God's grace and goodness to Adam in chapter 2. This helper fit for him. Now the word helper, 
It's not a demeaning term in Scripture. That word is used to describe God Himself. So watch out how you define this. Okay? The helper is used to describe God Himself. Listen to Deuteronomy 33 verse 26. It says, There is none like God who rides through the heavens to your help. Same Hebrew word. Okay? So this is not a demeaning term. That Adam is to be given a helper. That is a positive thing. She is to be a helper fit for him. That means, this word helper, it means it's a representation of strength. Okay? And it presupposes that Adam needs what? It presupposes that Adam needs help. If God is going to give him a helper, it presupposes that he needs help. And I want to just hammer this down. When we, when we see language like this, we need, to, we need to exalt God's view of women in Scripture. The Bible places a high value of women on women. This is God's greatest gift to man. She is a helper in the same, in, in a similar way that God helps man. And man needs this woman. She is his indispensable companion. She, he needs the help that she brings. She is literally opposite him. She brings something to the table. You ever thought about that? A lot of times our culture describes women as, or you get these little taglines and these male conversations as, that's trophy wife. And she's sitting off in the corner and her job is to look really pretty. And she's like a piece of furniture. She looks really good. That is not the picture of Genesis 1. She's a helper. She brings something to the table. She's got things that she adds to man. And I thought about this yesterday. Genesis chapter 2 teaches that women, they're not just hotties, they're helpers. Right? They're helpers. They are, they are needed. They are needed. And they're opposite Him. She is a helper opposite Him. She is His perfect corresponding companion. Right? Yes, physically, she corresponds to Him. But deeper, in every way, she corresponds to Him. Think about this. She's a helper... And she gives real substantial help where it's needed. That means their strengths and their weaknesses form together. Their sufficiencies and insufficiencies form together to make one another stronger. Okay, They are better together. That's the picture of Genesis chapter 2. And the best way to say this is in Ecclesiastes 4.9. Listen to this. They're better together by God's design. Genesis, uh, Ecclesiastes 4.9-11 through 11 says two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toll. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? They are better together by God's design. She gives real substantial help. She brings something to the table. She is not created to be exactly like man. She is not man's clone. By God's design, she is man's companion. And they go together by God's design. Verse 19 and 20 says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. 
Okay. Y'all think about this. We need to learn to follow and to trace the ideas of Scripture. Okay? The, the content and the arguments. And what just happened is we just transferred from God creating a woman to animals being named. Okay? That seemed like an abrupt transition to you. What's, what's happening here? Is this, is this a, a wacky curveball that's thrown into Genesis chapter 2? What's going on here? Okay? From designing a helper fit for him to naming animals. And I want you to know that this is an intentional delay. God doesn't immediately create the woman on purpose. Okay, So something is happening here. There's about to be a wedding in the Garden of Eden, but here's the problem. Adam is the first human being on a planet. He's never seen a helper like him. He has no reference point of what he needs. He's not even aware of what he lacks. That's the problem. Adam is unaware. He has no awareness of what he lacks. And so, God's plan is to prepare this husband to receive his bride. God wants this man to receive his bride with the knowledge of her value, with the knowledge of how much she is needed. And so he takes him through this process. And what's God's process? Naming animals. You've got an animal parade. How's that for marriage uh, preparation for marriage? Okay, But something's happening here. I want you to think about this. Yes, this shows Adam's dominion over the animals. It does. He names them. It shows his dominion just like God told him. He had dominion over them back in Genesis 1, 28 and following. But mainly what this is doing is this is giving Adam a reference point. And you think about that. You just imagine him there. And he, these animals are brought to Adam and he says, oh, that's a, a he-dog and that's a she-dog. And that's a he-cow, and that's a she-cow. And that's a he-line, and that's a she-line, right? And you multiply that about a hundred times or more. And then what's, the take, what's Adam's takeaway from that? Named all these animals, and all of a sudden he's thinking, where's, where's my companion? I, I don't have a companion like me. I just named about a hundred plus of these companions, but I don't have one. And so this process makes him aware. This is how God built his desire up for his bride. Okay? He showed Adam through this naming process of what he lacked. God wanted this woman to be longed for and highly valued. And so he prepared the man to receive her. He prepared the man to value her. And then he goes to work preparing the woman. He prepares the man and then he goes to work preparing the woman. Listen to verse 21 and 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with its flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to man. So this woman is prepared, built by the living God. From our translations, most of them say rib. That's a Hebrew word that literally means his side. And what God did was he took a piece of Adam's flesh and bone out of his side and he formed it into a woman. And you think about this. This is on purpose. God is not forming woman out of the dust of the ground just like he did the animals, just like he did Adam. Okay? He is forming woman out of man. 
And there, there's something intentional about that. Woman, she's not like the other animals. She's not part of that created order that man is to dominate. She's taken from his side. She's, the, she's made of the same stuff that he is. She's got the same DNA that he has. Okay, And that's the picture here. She's taken from his side. Listen to this Matthew Henry quote. It's a famous quote in church history. He says, The woman was made of the rib out of the side of man. Not made out of his head to rule over, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be his equal, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. I don't know how you can say it better than that. That says it all. She is taken out of his side to be his companion like him. This gracious gift from God to him. And at the end of verse 22, the Lord God is the one. He literally brings this woman to the man. And so this is, this is the imagery of the first wedding. Just like we see fathers walking their daughters down the aisle, the Lord God has got His daughter on His arm. And He walks her to the man. Okay, And we see here that the man is put asleep. And in Genesis 15, God put Abraham to sleep for a very similar reason. You can go check this out. God puts Abraham to sleep in Genesis 15 and then makes an everlasting covenant with Abraham. And the point of it is that God's work in Abraham's life was unilateral. Abraham had nothing to it. He had, he had nothing to claim walking away from that covenant. He couldn't boast in it. In the same way, man is put to sleep. He can't boast at all about the creation of woman. This is God's work alone. And He wakes up man and He brings woman to man. And Adam's awake, and his eyes fall on the first woman. And I want you to just think about this. She is standing there, and, and she is a helper uh, opposite him, a helper like opposite him. She's, she is the most beautiful of all of God's creation. Anyone want to challenge that? That woman becomes the most beautiful creation of God, and she's standing before him. And, and what happens? What's the first thing that happens in the first wedding. And I wonder if this is supposed to teach us something today. What is the first thing that happens when, it is, when his eyes fall on this woman? You have this husband and he explodes with praise to God for his bride. Explodes with praise to God. He says in verse 23, Then man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Does the Bible teach male headship? Absolutely it does. But you know what it also teaches? It also commands that husbands are to value, to treasure, to love their bride. To praise God for this gift that He has given us. To love our wives even as Christ loved the church. And so when His eyes hit the woman, He didn't see a slave that He tried to dominate or a rival that He would compete with. He saw a, a gracious gift from God. A companion like Him. And he praised God for this woman. First thing he says, he opens his mouth and he says, at last. And that shows you this longing that God built into Adam. It's fulfilled when his eyes hit this woman. These are the first recorded human words in the Bible. Do you know that? The first thing that we know that Adam said was this. This is the first words. And then stack this on top of it. This is Hebrew poetry. The first recorded words in Scripture are five stanzas of a love song from a husband to his bride, praising God for what He's given him. Okay, Do you see how high of a value 
that the Bible places on women and on marriage and on this gracious gift that God has given man. So I want you to ask yourself this. Let's just pause for a second before we go further. He saw his bride and he praised God. So the question for you today, if you're married and you're in this room, when is the last time that this happened in your life? That you exploded with praise, with gratitude, with joy towards God for this good gift that He has given you. This is the pattern. This is the design. This glorifies God when this happens in your life. When is the last time this happened? That you are glorying in God for this gift of your spouse. And notice I said your spouse. Your spouse. Do you know the, the, one, of the, one of the main problems in marriage? You know what it is? Is that we become fixated. We get our eyes focused on other people and we become fixated with making our spouse like blank. I wish my spouse was more like blank. The picture is you praising God for your spouse. Not wishing your spouse was like somebody else's spouse. That's called covetousness in the Word of God. It's a sin. So this is the picture from the very beginning. This man is exploding with praise to God for his bride. And I want to take just a second to talk about gender roles from this passage. Because I want to hit this before we go into verse 24. Gender roles. What does the Bible teach about gender roles? Best way to probably think about this is to ask this question. Did God design men and women equal? Did God design men and women equal? And I'm going to give you two answers to that question. In one sense, absolutely yes. In one sense, absolutely yes. God designed men and women equal. In another sense, no He did not. Men and women are not absolutely equal in another sense. Now before you cane me in front of everybody in this room, I want you to listen to what the Bible teaches about this. Okay? This is in creation before sin even comes in. Sin isn't even here. This is, gender roles that God created are not a product of sin. They're God's good design. So I want you to listen. What, what do we know so far? We know that Adam said that this woman is of his flesh and of his bone. She is not a lower creature than man. She is the same stuff, same DNA. Right? So... In the first sense, she is equal to man. Genesis 1.27. She is an equal image bearer with man. She ha- that means she has equal value. In fact, we can just say it like this. There is no human being on this planet that has more intrinsic value than another human being. None. She has the same value as man. She's equal to man in value. And just think about the context of Genesis 2 and 3. She also... She is equally morally responsible. She is given this, this prohibition through Adam not to eat of the tree. Genesis chapter 3, she eats of the tree. End of Genesis chapter 3, she also falls under the curse of God. She doesn't get a free pass because she's under Adam's leadership. She is equal before God and she is morally count, accountable before God. So that's the first sense. Yes, absolutely. She's equal to man. This is what we see here. But in another sense, the Bible teaches that women and men have differences, inequalities. And that's the stuff that your culture hates. They're not made in the exact same way. 
And the differences are not mainly about abilities. You hear this kind of nonsense a lot that, you know, uh, men are better at science and women are better at relationships. Okay? And, and, and hey, there might be, you, in your observation, you might have observed that before. But do you know that there is no biblical authority to labels like that? That's not how the Bible talks about the differences. That's psychology. That is not Bible. The, the Bible teaches that women and men, they're not different mainly in abilities. The differences mainly lie in responsibilities. Okay? They have been given, they're equally gifted, but they have been given different roles, different responsibilities from the very beginning. So in one sense, she is of Adam's flesh and of Adam's blood. In another sense, she is Adam's helper. Okay? God created from the beginning the man as the leader. That's his role. And God created from the very beginning woman as the helper. That's her role. Okay? Both of these roles are important, but they are not the same. They are not the same. And just in case there's a, the evil one just popping off in your ear, that's not fair. That's not fair. That's, that's, that is a distortion. That's not... That's not the good God's design. Well, you think about this. That triune God that we talked about a minute ago. One God, three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three members, all three persons of the Trinity. Equal in power. Equal in glory. All three are worshipped and bowed down for too. But do you know that they play different roles? Even in the Trinity. God the, God the Son plays a different role, different responsibility than God the Father. He submits to the Father. He is under the Father's leadership. God the Holy Spirit. This is almost a verbatim picture of the Christian family. That God the Holy Spirit submits to both God the Son and God the Father. Christian family. The woman is placed under the husband's leadership. And the child is placed under the leadership of the wife and of the husband. Do you see that? This is not something that's disgusting. This is not dirty. Gender roles glorify God. They show what God is like. From the very beginning, okay, this is a glory to God. And this is something that Satan's going to directly attack in Genesis chapter 3. And I don't know if you've ever seen this before. We'll have more time to talk about this. But he directly assaults gender roles as part of the temptation. And we'll talk about that more in the next couple of weeks. Let's zone in the rest of our time on verse 24 and 25. Verse 24 says this, Therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So, we just saw a wedding happen in the Garden of Eden. First man was joined to the first woman, and then all of a sudden the voice of Moses breaks in with a therefore. That's his voice in verse 24. He's the one that wrote the book. He's been telling the narrative and telling the story, and then he inserts this comment with a therefore. And that therefore transitions the first wedding, and now we're not talking about the first wedding anymore. We're talking about every single wedding that follows. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the foundation of marriage. This is what we want to lean into and learn well as we finish up. So I want to just pull seven things from what I see in, the, in these final two verses. Foundations of marriage. This is what we got to know well. This is what we got to know well in order to walk out. And the first one is this. The husband is to lead his bride. 
Husband is to lead his bride. We talked about gender roles a second ago. You have this really repeated here. Where are you getting that from? I don't see that word in there. Let's talk about it. The command to leave father and mother is not given to both of them. It's given to the man. A man shall leave his father and mother. And so, first thing we see about biblical marriage is that the man always takes the initiative. He is the one that initiates the marriage process. He leads the relationship from day one. From day one, even before marriage. He leads the relationship towards marriage. And once the marriage is consummated, He leads the relationship in marriage. He is the leader from day one. Now that's a wake-up call in in a passive male generation, right? This is God's pattern that men lead. Masculinity in the Bible is not mainly about the squat rack. Do you know that? It's mainly about you taking initiative in leading your family. Amen? Alright, number two. The wife is to be the husband's highest earthly priority. The wife is to be the husband's highest earthly priority. So the command that the man would leave father and mother. Literally, he would forsake his father and mother. That's the command. The command is forsake your father and mother. And so we got to think about that for a minute, okay? Because we have a tendency to misinterpret the Bible. And so the first thing I want to just push in front of you, we cannot interpret this literally, okay? That command is not to be handled literally. That is not a command for a man to geographically move out of his parents' house. That's not what the command means. It never meant that in Israel. It never meant that. In the first audience that received this, and every single generation after this, multiple generations of the husband's family lived together. The wife left her family and came and lived with the husband and his family. That's not what it means. Okay, We can't handle this command like that. So how do we handle it? We handle this the same way that we handle Jesus' word in Luke 14.26. Listen to this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus teaches us there that our relationship with Christ is to look like hatred in comparison to every other earthly relationship. He is to have supremacy and priority in every way, right? We good there? Walk that same, that same interpretation back into Genesis 2.24. This commandment is teaching that the husband's highest earthly priority was to his parents. But once he takes a wife, that highest earthly priority shifts and it now becomes his wife. That means that part of being a godly husband is that you look into the eyes of your wife and she knows that there is nothing on earth that gets in the way of you and her. You, she is your highest earthly priority, only surpassed by God Himself. Okay, This is the picture. The command is about a radical shift in the husband's priorities. His, his obligations to his parents to love them still remain. Still remain, but she is the supreme Earthly responsibility. Number three. The marriage is to be marked by commitment. By commitment. I wish I had some more divorce statistics to 
to put before you, some, some pretty current ones. But I just want you to put what you know about the current trends of divorce in our culture next to God's design and, and, and biblical patterns of marriage. His command is to hold fast. Hold fast. Now that's covenant language that is used in the Bible to describe the way that we hold fast to God. Okay, this is covenant language. Listen to Deuteronomy 13 verse 4. It says this, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. In the same way that you hold fast to God, you are to hold fast to your spouse. That word literally means to stick. Okay, That there's nothing that separates. Nothing to pull you apart. Nothing to, to separate you. This shows us that from the very beginning, marriage is designed by God, designed by God to be a lifelong covenant commitment. Only broken by death. This is the only thing that breaks the covenant of marriage is death. From the beginning, the command, hold fast. And so, disciples of Jesus, you got an, you got an opportunity to glorify Christ and you keep in your vows in marriage. Let your yes be your yes. You promise before God that... that uh, what, what's the vow? You promise before God till death do us part. That's what you said. Or something like that. And God's command to us today is to keep our promise. Number four. So number three, marriage is to be marked by commitment. Number four, marriage is also to be marked by passion. And you get this from the phrase, the two shall become one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. From the very beginning, the Bible teaches that covenant, lifelong marriage is the only context for sex. Period. That's it. There's nothing else appropriate for a sexual relationship between any human beings other than a covenant, lifelong relationship with one another. Man and woman. So, in case never, nobody has ever told you this before, okay? We Christians, I'm talking to my brothers and sisters, we are not against sex. We are not. We are actually for it. We celebrate it. Our God created it. Nobody else has the block on it. Our God created it and we know what He designed it to do. Do you understand that? We're for it. We're not against it. The Bible's for it. It's not against it. But it's, only, it's a glorious gift from God that is only to be celebrated, only to be used in the context of this covenant of marriage. One flesh. So this is the reminder for us. Notice how those, those two go together. Marriage is to be marked by commitment and marriage is to be marked by passion. And I just want you to know that it glorifies Jesus Christ when you are enraptured with passion towards your spouse, it glorifies God. This is part of biblical marriage. It glorifies Jesus. And it's not one or the other. It's commitment and passion. I heard a guy say this a couple months ago. Hunter was there when he heard, when he heard it too. He said, biblical marriage is to be both rock solid and red hot. And we're never to separate these things. Rock solid commitment, red hot passion. That glorifies Jesus. 
That glorifies Jesus. This is how the gift is intended to be used. Number five, the goal of marriage is oneness. The goal of marriage is oneness. A husband and a wife, they physically become one through this sexual union, but it goes deeper than that. Okay? Remember, this whole thing is set up. It's an illustration by God to show something about Himself. Okay? It goes deeper than the physical union. Listen to this. This one flesh picture, this is at the, at the tip of the spear. This is how marriage points to Christ. One flesh. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 16, and 17. It says, For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. And then it says, For he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And so God's design with a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, is that they become one physically, but it goes way deeper than that. They, they become one in every way. They become one physically, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually. Uh, Puritans used to call this the mingling of souls, that the sovereign God takes two souls and He weaves them together and mingles them into one. That's the picture. And what does that point to? The relationship between God and His church. The one who believes the gospel. The one who believes in the Lord Jesus becomes one, one spirit with the living God. They share all things in common. Nothing, nothing is separate any longer. The two become one. And so, oneness is the goal of your marriage. You're, the goal of what God desires for you and your spouse is that you become one in every way. Together, in every way. Verse 25. And the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is really setting it up for the next chapter. Okay, We're going to talk more about this theme of nakedness and shame. This is how he transitions from marriage to sin. Right? You remember how we talked about that the past couple weeks? Everything in chapter 2 is really setting you up to move into the story of the fall. And this is how he does it. He transitions from marriage and purity towards sin and the fall with one verse. And he does it with those words, nakedness and unashamed. And so the reason, the picture we get here, this is the last glimpse we get of humanity before sin wrecks the world. Okay, And they have no shame toward one another, toward God. Why? A lot of times people fumble the football because they start saying, you know, well, well they were perfect. You know, Adam had a, a rock, rock hard six pack and, and uh, 20, inch, uh, 20 inch guns, not an ounce of fat on his body. I really don't think that that's why they are unashamed. Okay? I really don't. I think that that has no reading in, into what's happening here. Okay? Everything we know about how this moves is that they are unashamed because they have no sin. They are in a holy, pure, covenant marriage with one another. Their marriage bed is 100% pure and undefiled. They have no sin and they are unashamed. And so, number six, marriage bed is to be undefiled. You get a picture here of how God designed marriage and what He designed marriage to be. And what that means is everything that falls short of this picture is sin. Everything. Listen close. Everything that falls short 
is sin. That means all fornication and homosexuality and masturbation and polygamy, transgender, pornography, adultery, male domination, feminism and divorce. Every single one of them are perversions to what God has designed. It's sin. They're wickedness in God's presence. Fall short of His standard. So God's command to us in Hebrews 13.4, disciples of Jesus, God's command to us, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So you have these foundations. That was the first six. This, this, this is what God designed for us to walk in. Right? Y'all with me on this? And our response to these foundations and God's pattern and God's design takes us back to that analogy with the paintbrush in the hand and, and touching the canvas. And your, your response to what we just looked at is determining what kind of picture you are painting of Jesus. And so the last reminder, we're going to come full circle here. How you are responding to these things is meant to glorify Jesus. God has you married to show something about His relationship to His church. That's why you are married. For the glory of Christ. And so we have this opportunity to paint a faithful picture of Jesus. This is a glorious path for us to walk. So you just think about that. How much time do you spend in interacting with your spouse. If you were to even able to count that up. Do you know that every one of those interactions are an opportunity to glorify Christ. To paint a picture of Jesus Christ. And that goes both ways. Man and woman. Both ways. This is the picture. This is what we want to respond to as disciples of Jesus. How sad would this be? If we were known as that, that church. That we love the word of God. We love the Word of God. We love the mission of God, making disciples. But when the door closes at our house and you walk in on a, on a conversation and interaction between us, a husband and a wife, there's distortion. Okay? We, want to hit, we, want to, we want that far from us. Far from us. Anybody in this room know what it's like to fight sin in marriage? Okay? This is a common struggle. There's no condemnation here. We want to learn how to drive out sin from marriage, how to drive out selfishness and how to paint a faithful picture of Jesus. So if you're here today and you are not married, I want to talk to you for a second. Single, here today and you are not married. I want to remind you that biblically, the gift of singleness is... Really a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a glorious gift. Jesus had it. Paul had it. Okay? But this gift is given to very, very few. With me on that? That means, turn the corner, most of you in this room that are single, you need to prepare to be married. You need to prepare to be married. And so if your first response when you hear something like that, well, man, that would be really good for me to listen to in a couple of years. Wrong response, okay? You need to prepare to get married. This is ridiculous in our culture. You know what our culture's definition of getting ready to be married is? You know, you, 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 you meet your spouse and, and you set your day and you got all these plans. You've probably spent 20 hours planning the actual ceremony. 
But we actually need to get some training, you know, because we're going to be married after that wedding. And so we want to talk about how to relate to one another. So I got this great idea, you know. And marriage preparation is this. You know, it, it, it takes you four to six years to be a doctor, training to be a doctor. It takes you two to three years training to be a nurse. All kind of time that we spend training for our vocation. And we have this pitiful, pathetic, that we go two months out from our marriage and sit in a one-hour counseling session. And we want to call that preparing for the most important earthly role that we will ever walk in in life. We prepare now. If you are single, you're, by and large, I can say this, very few exceptions to this, you will be married. And you need to prepare to be married now. The time to study the Bible about what it says about marriage and says about gender and says about what you need to be is now. It's not later. Okay? You need to prepare to be married. And I just want to remind parents, you know, we're training up children and we want them to, we want them to love Christ and to serve Christ. And I just want to be a voice in your ear in this moment. More so than you are training a future doctor or a future firefighter that loves Jesus, 10,000 times more so, you are training a future husband and a future wife that loves Jesus Christ. We have an opportunity to shape them from the youngest of days in the midst of this ungodly culture. Okay, This is what we're going after. We want, we want to take marriage serious because of what it points to, because of what's at stake. And so, today we celebrate marriage, but I want to end with reminding us that marriage is glorious, but it's not ultimate. It's glorious, but it's not ultimate. Exalt it, celebrate it, know about it, but don't idolize it. Okay? It is not the ultimate thing. It is a means to an end. It points to a glorious end. And the end that it's designed to point to is Jesus. And so every, here's how you know that you're seeing it right. Every glimpse that you get of marriage is meant to be a glimpse of Jesus Christ. And if it's not, you're idolizing it. You're going after marriage apart from Jesus. Okay? Every glimpse of marriage is meant to be a glimpse of Jesus. And I just want to put something before you, just to consider about something that might be in this passage. And I say might be because I'm unconvinced. I want to give it to you and I want you to decide for yourself. Okay. Very few, but some commentators see a picture of the work of Jesus Christ in God forming the woman from the man. You say, what do you mean? Adam was wounded on his side. And from these wounds, God created this beautiful and this glorious bride. Jesus Christ hung on a bloody cross with a spear jabbed into His side. Adam was put to sleep, a deep sleep. Jesus Christ slept the sleep of death, right? Adam was awaked. That could be a picture of the resurrection of Jesus. And what comes out of that exchange with Adam is this glorious bride. And what comes out of the finished work of Christ is the church, the bride of Jesus. And so I want to remind you, that as we go towards exalted marriage, this is what we're celebrating. That the God-man made Himself part of this creation, lived a perfect life, and then died in our place as the Lamb of God. As the Lamb of God. He's the true bridegroom that laid down His life to win His bride, His church. 
And we celebrate this. He comes out of the tomb in His glorious resurrection. And this offer is good for anybody in this room today. That if you repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ, you will be joined with the living God as one Spirit. You will know Him. You will know Him. You will have Him as your God. So what this is moving towards, is it's moving towards eternity. And where... Where you're going to be in eternity is based off your response to the finished work of Christ. That's what determines where you spend forever. And here's what I mean. Time itself is going to be wrapped up with a wedding. You remember we started with that. The Bible begins with the wedding and it also ends with the wedding in eternity. At this wedding, it's the final wedding. It's the wedding that ends all weddings. It's the wedding that every earthly wedding points to. And that wedding is when the true bridegroom, Jesus, comes back and He receives His bride to Himself. And we are in face-to-face fellowship with Jesus, our bridegroom, into eternity. Never to be separated. That's where this thing is headed. But here's the truth. okay? Not everybody enters into eternity and meets Jesus, the bridegroom. And you need to be warned about that today. If you are playing games at being a Christian, if you name Christ with your lips, but your heart is far from Him, you will enter into eternity and you will not meet Jesus the bridegroom. You will meet Jesus the righteous judge. The one who is appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. The one who will trample the winepress of the wrath of God. But this is the free grace of God to you. That Jesus, He he is the true bridegroom that gave His life. For us, He laid His life down as the Lamb for our sins. And so what we long for as the people of God is that you would be there, that you would know Him, that we would all experience Jesus as the bridegroom. And so in this day, think about this. Of everything that we've learned in Genesis 1 and 2, there's coming a day where Jesus, the true bridegroom, is going to join Himself to His bride, the church. And from this holy union, Christ and His bride are going to rule over God's creation. They're going to fulfill the pattern in Genesis 1 and 2. He's going to wrap it all up and fulfill it. Listen to Revelation 22.5. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp. Or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. They will reign. Not just He will reign, they will reign. Did you know that? That we will reign with Jesus. We, His bride, His church, we will reign with Him. He will fulfill every ounce of this in Genesis 1 and 2. Through His bride, through His people. This is what we look out for. This is what we long for. Is that this earthly picture would fade. And that we would walk into this glorious marriage with Christ forever. This is the end. That's that's what we idolize. That's what we bow down and worship. Not earthly marriage. It's meant to point to that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to praise You today for dying for us. We remember in a fresh way today, Lord, that thousands of times, Lord, we have rebelled against You. We're just like that couple that that rebelled against You in Genesis 3. Spit in Your face. We're just like them, Lord.
And yet you have pursued us in Christ. And you have paid the ultimate price for your rebellious creatures. And we just say thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for your work of grace. Thank you, God, for your compassion and your mercy toward us. And thank you, Lord, that we know you today. Thank you that you are for us. God, thank you that your grace toward us is greater than any sin, any stronghold in marriage. And we just ask you, Lord, that you would work powerfully among us, God, in this area. God, I pray for Grace Community Church and further. And we ask, Lord, that your resurrection power would be put to work in us, God, and that you would conform us more and more to your likeness as husbands and as wives. God, we pray that You would drive out sins and perversions from our families, from our houses, from our marriages, God. That You would strengthen us, Lord Jesus, and that You would make us a praise in the earth. God, I pray that You would make us a people serious about marriage, but not idolaters. More than anything else, Lord, we want to worship You and paint a right picture of You, Lord Jesus. And we ask for Your help today. In Jesus' name, Amen.